Welcome to the Signal Line Remote Viewing Podcast, a podcast owned and run by Daz Smith from RemoteViewed.com, the resource for everything remote viewing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing remote viewing related interviews, views, news, resources, and much more. Hi, I'm Daz Smith and welcome to another episode of The Signal Line. Today's podcast was a remote viewing community AMA with John Herlowski on Friday the 14th of May 2021. John is the author of A Sorcerer's Apprentice, a skeptic journey into the CIA's Project Stargate and remote viewing. John Herlowski has worked for two large metropolitan police departments as a police officer and academy instructor. And he's also been trained in SWAT tactics and is a designated marksman. John is considered an expert in the field of human performance technologies and has also spent half his life in the martial arts. After reading an expose by former member of the CIA's Project Stargate, Dr. David Morehouse, two years later, skeptical but intrigued by the possibilities that this implied, John entered the classroom of Morehouse to find out the truth and he's never looked back. The book Sorcerer's Apprentice, his his account of his experiences learning the CIA-sponsored, scientifically validated form of extrasensory perception called remote viewing. We hope you enjoy this podcast and look forward to your comments below. You know, I know you're well-versed in CRV as well as uh, ERV. I know you've you've trained in both, but I, I, I... I think I've heard you say before your preferred, you know, mode of travel is ERV. Is that, would you say that's true? Yes. As, as a matter of fact, that is true. Um, while in David's classes, he always started us out in CRV as the beginning and intermediate. And his reasoning behind that was while ERV is easy to learn it's relatively difficult to actually attain. Whereas CRV, which is because of the arcane terminology and the different stages, is relatively difficult to learn. Once you learn it, it's quite easy for just about anybody to be able to utilize it. Um, When I first started getting involved in, in remote viewing, Uh, I I read David's book, Psychic Warrior, and like David, he was primarily an ERV, or that was his preferred mode, and I was just fascinated by the idea of extended remote viewing. It just seemed to to be the ultimate pinnacle of remote viewing, and so that was what I aspired to. And um, I read everything that I could regarding remote viewing after reading his book. And it wasn't until 1999, the spring of, that I managed to get into a class at UCLA that he was teaching on beginning intermediate uh, uh, coordinate remote viewing, CRV. And then from there, I went on to take every single one of his courses several times, including the ERV class. And um, 
never looked back. I mean, it was just an amazing adventure. Now, is it is it the immersiveness of the quality of ERV? Do you think that's what kind of draws you to that modality more than CRV? You know, as far as preference wise. That's an interesting question. Uh, I believe it's primarily because of some of the work that I did prior to getting into remote viewing. And if you've read my book, you know that I was involved in a project called Trojan Warrior 2, which was based on um, the original Trojan Warrior series, which was a classified program done for the special forces. One of the things that was involved in this program was both meditation and uh, EEG biofeedback. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to go through that. And the abilities that I acquired from that training, I think were most amenable to ERV. And so not only was the description given by Dave Morehouse an incentive, um, I think that my success in it was partially because of the training that I had undergone prior to Dave's classes. And it's a whole different level from CRV. CRV was designed by the military, okay? And its primary purpose is to gather information. And it's very good at that. But I wanted more than just that. Um, it turned out that when I took his first ERV class, um, I almost immediately started into bilocations. And they were so immersive and so astounding that I got hooked on it. And uh, so in the future, when I did operational work, I did almost all of it in ERV. Thanks, John. Anytime. <laughs> okay, I don't see any hands up next. Has anyone got any questions they want to ask? Everyone. It's a quiet one. Go for it, Dom. Uh, you mentioned. Um... The Trojan Warrior 2. I did not get a chance to read your book. Could you say a little more about it? <clears throat> the original program was run by the Army back in the mid-80s. And uh, it was an outgrowth of a program that was codenamed the Golden Sphere Concept. And the idea um, to it was brought about by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Channon, who came up with the idea of the first Earth Battalion, which would be composed of warrior monks. And they would be going through all sorts of different training that he had researched in order to make them a more potent adversary. Um, at the time, the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact had numerical superiority over us in Europe. And the U.S. Army was looking for ways to qualitatively gain superiority 
over the, uh, the Soviet Union. So they put together a program with a company called SportsMind, and they covered a number of different technologies, uh, mind-body integration technologies, which included martial arts, included um, these new Cybex stretching and uh, weight workout machines. They did meditation. They brought in various instructors from various um, modalities. Um, what else? They did... Oh, let's see. There, there were a number of different things. Oh, they, they taught um, biofeedback, not just EEG biofeedback, but also uh, thermal biofeedback in order to help the soldiers in cold climates so they wouldn't become cold. And so by the end of their training, they could stick their hand into a glass of ice water, melt the ice and warm the water up to their own temperature and not freeze their hands. So they put together this whole sequence of training over a six month period. And then uh, the two special forces, 18s that went through the training um, were, were sent on a field X in Norway. And in order to, to get a, comparison between a regular special forces unit, they sent another regular special forces unit that had not been trained in that uh, protocol. And the Trojan warrior soldiers came in first on everything. They beat everybody. It was just an amazing thing. The only sad thing is that um, the major who ran the program was promoted to lieutenant colonel was shifted out of the unit and the Trojan warrior training was never um, integrated into special forces. So I decided um, back in the early nineties after the um, Rodney King incident, that something like that might be a good way to enhance police officers to give them the kind of training that would help them from doing something like that. And so I worked with another um, police officer from the Colorado Springs Police Department, and we put together a program. Um, and we were going to do what the um, Raid Galois, which is one of those, one of the first adventure races where they drop you off in some faraway land and you have to do um, something like two or 300 kilometers by compass and map only and to undergo certain uh, evolutions along the way. And we had interest from the Navy SEALs we had several Navy SEALs who were in, uh, involved in the program. Unfortunately, our funding source withdrew at the last moment and uh, the program was never actually instituted. Mm. 
But that essentially is what the Trojan Warrior and Trojan Warrior 2 programs were. Okay. Thank you very much. Oh, um, if you would like to know more about Trojan Warrior, one of the people involved in the program, the original program, uh, wrote a book uh, called In Search of the Warrior's Spirit by um, Richard Strazzi Heckler, Dr. Richard Stra uh, Strazzi Heckler. And it's his essentially his autobiography of the time that um, uh, he spent in that program. It's a really interesting read. Uh, what was the name of the book again? In Search of the Warrior's Spirit. All righty. All right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. John, uh, just uh, an inquiry, really. Was the uh, the project you worked on uh, similar in style to the one that I've heard, the, uh, uh, which was called Project Jedi, which was run by uh, Stubblebine? Uh, they call the nickname for the program was the Jedi program, the, uh, the original one, but there was also as part of the training, um, that had to do with shooting. They had what was called the Jedi protocol. And this was a protocol that was designed originally to help them become instinctive shooters. And later it was expanded so that the uh, special forces could assimilate any type of training in a step-by-step -step way that would bring it about quickly. And that was called the Jedi program inside Trojan Warrior. Thanks for that. Um, first hand up, then we got is Kiao. Uh, if you'd like to go next. Hello, John. Thanks uh, for coming here. It's really nice to see you. I have two totally different questions, so I think we'll just do one. And then if I get a chance later with time, we'll go for the second one. So here it is. I'm interested in the link between your previous experience in law enforcement and RV. What advice might you offer for a person trying to bring criminals to light into justice if it is a cold case from 10 years ago? In other words, the police are not interested in psychic leads unless there's a solid testimony or a confession as forensic evidence is probably pretty well all gone right now. It's a, a crazy question, but I thought maybe you might know something. Well, I've worked with law enforcement. Um, one of the biggest problems with law enforcement is well-meaning but unsophisticated attempts to bring psychic information to law enforcement. You have to understand that law enforcement is a pretty insular organization. Um, they're relatively refractory to anything that's out there. Okay. So they've been burned before of course. by people who were psychic, so-called psychics, and the information did not turn out. So in remote viewing, most of the instructors will tell you, do not do unsolicited um, attempts at assisting law enforcement because number one, 
more than likely they're going to shine it on. And number two, if you do have good information, they start looking at you as a possible suspect. Okay. Um, There are several groups out there that do work with law enforcement. One of which is the most famous is the Husick group uh, run by Gail Husick and uh, Pam Coronado who um, has also worked uh, on several occasions. Normally what we do is we wait for them to approach us. And that has just, and as a matter of fact, that has just recently happened. I got an email out of the blue from a detective in Ohio who wanted assistance on a cold case, a missing case. And I set her up with Gail Husick in order to run the program. So it does happen from time to time, but it is a very specialized form of uh, approach when you deal with law enforcement. You have to explain to them what the advantages and the limitations are of using remote viewing in um, investigative work. Yeah, and in this specific case, it's what's happened now is we've gotten really good remote viewers to help me, who I also view. But I've taken the gateway and I'm quite familiar with a lot of alternative forms of communication, the best way of putting it. And the really interesting thing is that this one viewer in our community has, it seems to me, has put me in contact with the person that was involved in the crime. In other words, one of the criminals. And it's, it's, again, this is way, way out there, but, but it's the, the only real solid thing that we've had or we've seen happening. And, and again, this is so ERV, it's, it's in the fantasy world, but it, it, I don't know, it seems like you're pretty experienced with this type of thing. So at this point, we're trying to locate that person or communicate with the person around the person to get a testimony. In other words, we're not waiting for the police and we've spoken and we understand after 10 years, they don't have the time for it unless, again, we have testimony or a confession, one of the two. So uh, I really appreciate your answer. And of course, it was informative. One of the things you might want to do if you are involved in something like this and you want to continue, um, there are two suggestions that I would make. First of all, run one of your um, investigations as an experiment. Document everything, okay? Um, Make sure you run the regular remote viewing protocols, okay? Uh, Have a project manager that runs it and have the, the operators who are doing the viewing, uh, have them blind to the target. And make a thorough, um, what would I call it, and, um, recording of everything that you do. And then what you can do is uh, you can do something like publish that in the remote viewing community uh, magazine that um, Catherine Hop, Hoppy runs. And you can also publish it in the Journal for Scientific Exploration. And 
if you have a situation where it's really um, successful, uh, you might get a phone call one day or a text someday where law enforcement is interested in the work you've done. It does happen. It does okay. happen. Thank you. That's a good, good. And the other thing is you might want to contact uh, both Pam Coronado and Gail Husick, the Husick group. For sure. And let them run by uh, your experiment and let them read through the work that you did. And they can make um, constructive comments on what you've done. And it's really the best way to get into that type of investigative work. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I think Russell had his hand up for a while. You're up next, Russell. Okay. So um, my favorite chapter in your book is the one called Flashback about your Titanic experience. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. Okay. So um, there was two points in there. One, it appears that there was the ability to perceive each other's, you know, energy body uh, and Dave had placed himself in a particular position um, and created an effect so that you guys would, would be more uh, attracted to the target. Mm -hmm. And then the other part was the side effects that it had on you post session. Yeah. Um, so, any, anybody who, who is interested in this, I mean, if you want to hear some really cool, um, oops, there, some really cool subjective uh, descriptions of these experiences and um, actually very honest accountings, you, you really should. But anyway, so back to you, John. Could you tell us a little bit about the experience because you said that was your first by location right 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 and then could you talk a little bit about the like the emotional aftermath um that occurred as a result of that sure sure to give everybody a little bit of a background um i had already taken dave's uh, crv classes the beginning and intermediate classes that he holds several times and then he um, scheduled an ERE class. So I immediately signed up for that uh, because that was what I was waiting for. This was, you know, the, the holy grail, if you will, for me. Um, we went there. Uh, this was held up in um, Carmel, California. And... It was a relatively large class. There were about 40 people, all of whom were, had uh, gone through Dave's CRV classes. And um, Dave went through the, the, the lecture portion of the training, which was relatively short. And unlike uh, CRV with, with all of the um, uh, stages. And then on the second day, we had our first target. And as I was to find out happens in almost all of his classes, our first attempt at ERV was 
pretty much floundering around out in the matrix, not knowing what we were doing. It's not like CRV, which has handholds. You know, you have your certain stages, you follow the stages, and it happens. But in ERV, there are no handholds. I mean, once you pass that little sign that says, there be dragons out here. I mean, it, you really much have to feel your way through it. And so our first attempt at it was pretty poor. Most of the people stopped after about 30 minutes of the session. And the session was scheduled for 90 minutes. So Dave came back into the room and he was um, pissed, <laughs> to put it simply. He was disappointed that so many people had uh, quit after only about 20 or 30 minutes. And nobody got any information after he had spent um, like 20 minutes having people stand up and explain what they saw and nobody saw much of anything. So he said, all right, this is what we're gonna do. He said, I want you to go to lunch, have a good lunch, put everything aside. And when we come back, we're gonna go back to the same target. Only this time I'm going to accompany you and I'm going to do something to assist you in finding the target. And he wouldn't, you wouldn't, um, he wouldn't explain exactly what he was going to do. Uh, he just said, that's what we're going to do. So, of course, the topic when we were at lunch was, what was he going to do? You know, we had no idea. So when we finished uh, lunch, we went back for our afternoon session. And ERV is not like, um, is not conducted the same way that CRV is, I should point out. Um, in CRV, all you need is a table, um, a pad of paper, a pencil, and you're pretty much good to go. But in ERV, because ERV at that time, um, we were taught the, the same method that Dave was circa 1988, uh, is a much deeper uh, excursion, if you will, into the, um, the matrix. And so we all had sleeping bags and inflatable mattresses and pillows. And we also had eye shields and earplugs. And so these were what we, were, what we called our workstations. And so when we went back to the, to the room, we all got into our workstations. We all snugged up in our um, sleeping bags. We got nice and comfortable slipped our um, eye shields on the top of our heads and got ready to put the earplugs in. And Dave went into the room and he started up the cool down, which was a part of the ritual for ERV. And at that point, we put our earplugs in, our eye shields in, in order to remove any exterior um, stimulus. And so we could focus in interior, you know, we could turn inward. And in going through the rituals and the delivery mechanisms for ERV, um, I dropped into the target. 
And I was just astounded that it happened. In fact, I was so astounded that it happened and so excited that it happened that I immediately drifted back out of the zone, which is one of the things you have to be careful about uh, when you do ERV. If you get too excited and too into it, um, you lose the zone, the area that you need to be in. So I returned to my breathing exercises, drifted back down to the zone, and um, return to the target. And immediately, it was no longer fun because I, I had been nice and warm and comfortable in my sleeping bag. When I dropped into the target, I was freezing cold. My hands, my feet, I was, I was literally shivering. It was so cold. Um, not only that, an even more uncomfortable sensation intruded, which was I felt like I had a linebacker sitting on my chest. It was extremely difficult to get air in. It was very uncomfortable. It felt like I was being squeezed all over. And it, the, in the target area, the target area was dark. It was thick and heavy and oppressive. Um, I could see little motes of what I thought was either dust or snow. I wasn't quite sure what it was. All I knew was um, that I was just really uncomfortable. But since I was at the target area, you know, I... And I reinforced that just prior to dropping into the target zone um, that I wanted to go to the target. So I moved forward. Um, I looked around and all I could see was this darkness uh, that was thick and oppressive and trying to move through the medium that I was in was viscous. It was thick. It wasn't like just walking through a room with air. And so I, has, I was really disoriented and I wasn't quite sure exactly where I was. And then suddenly out of the gloom ahead of me reared this, this huge wall. And I stopped short and I was thinking, what's this? So I, I rose up and as I got to the top, the wall ended and there was like a fence at the top only it was clumped. It wasn't like a regular fence with wires or, or a, um, poles or anything like that. It looked like it had clumps of um, insulation that had been sprayed on it. And I was just wondering what the devil this was. And the... Um, I couldn't quite make out exactly what it was, but I could tell that there was a flatness to the top of this wall that went on off into the gloom. So I decided to go in that direction toward to my left to see where this led to so I could find out exactly what the hell I was looking at. And right at that point, out of the, out of the gloom came a light. I mean, I was shocked. I mean, there was a, it was as if somebody back in the gloom 
had taken a torch or flashlight and had waved it across like this. And I could actually see the light moving back and forth. So I immediately decided head for the light. So as I did so, unfortunately, um, the guy who was sitting next to me, my friend John, um, who was later diagnosed with sleep apnea, fell asleep, which is not uncommon in an ERV because you're down right on the threshold of sleep in that hypnagogic state. And he snorted <laughs> like that. And when he did it, it was like being on the end of a rubber band that was stretched out and then somebody let go of one end. I got snapped right back up to the room that I was in. And I had an immediate bout of vertigo. And it was extremely unsettling. And so I, I leaned over and I shook him awake. I said, hey, John, you're, you're asleep. You're snoring. He was, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. So I, I rolled back in and I was wondering where, where was this target? So I, I went back into my workstation, rolled back into it, and tried to get down as fast as I could because I knew I was running out of time. And unfortunately, by the time that I actually dropped back into the target area, uh, one of the Dave's helpers came in and said, okay, let's end the session. So I was never sure exactly what I saw. So at the end, um, we all warmed back up and went over to the tables to write our session summaries and to do our sketches and stuff. And so after that was done, we took a break and everybody was talking about what they saw. And then Dave called the class back together again. When he did so, uh, he said, how many of you are interested in seeing what your target was? And of course, everybody's hand goes up. And uh, he put up on the, uh, on the uh, video screen a picture of the bow of the Titanic, the, the famous picture that shows the bow um, with the um, UAV there taking pictures of it with the lights on it. And of course, it was exactly what I saw. The, it wasn't a fence that I was looking at. It was the, um, what do you call it? The lifelines that had been encrusted with marine life, which gave it a clumped appearance. And the thing of it was that, that I was really curious about was the fact that I had seen a light and the Titanic is at 15,000 feet below the North Atlantic. And so down there, there is no light. So I wondered where did the light come from? So Dave gave us all the, the entire class a chance to take 10 minutes out and talk about what you saw and what you experienced. And um, just about everybody was able to um, uh, get to the target and describe what they appeared to be, you know, walls and things like that. So after we were finished, he said, okay, here's your target. 
and then of course he he puts up the the thing of the, the Titanic. But everybody had questions, and all the questions were the same question: Where did the light come from? Because everybody saw the light; it wasn't just me. And Dave said that he stood up near the um, uh, the superstructure on the bow of the ship, waving a apparitional flashlight or torch out there into the gloom to try and signal everybody this is the target over here. I mean, it was entirely a mental construct that he used, but we saw it. I mean, it was just, I mean, our mouths dropped open. We saw it. And Dave said that he watched all of us drop into the target which I thought was pretty crazy. Um, it was an amazing experience. But again, I like to point out, it was not a fun trip. Um, I had bilocated. And a bilocation is simply where you identify so strongly what Lynn Buchanan calls perfect site integration with the target that you start experiencing physical manifestations that you normally would at that target site. Now, your brain keeps you from getting injured. You know, it, ha it has a, a sensor, if you will, that keeps you from being injured by an inimitable um, environment. But like I said, I was freezing cold. I felt like I couldn't breathe. I felt like there was somebody sitting on my chest. It was a very uncomfortable uh, experience. But at the same time, um, when it was over, I was, I was just floored by what had happened. And that, in effect, is what, it, what ERV can be like. One... Uh one thing, um, I don't know if you remember when we chatted about um, this in relation to uh, something that happened to me and how your book like turned on the light. I had done a session on a sunken submarine and the people in it had drowned. It was a few nights later, I woke up in the middle of the night and I felt literally like I was suffocating. I felt that same cold and pressure. Then when I read this, I was like, oh, wow. And as soon as I did, all that disappeared. As soon as I realized what it was, my theory is while doing the technical tasking on this remote viewing, um, the elements of maybe the residual energy or what have you from drowning or the claustrophobia or whatever of the crew, I had partially become aware of it, but didn't let it in. <clears throat> and it seemed like it was hanging there a little. So one of the things that you said here, it seemed like you had a little residual kickback too. Do you have any tips or suggestions on um, dealing with that? Is it, Oh, that's a good question. Um, I understand exactly what you're talking about. Were you doing CRV at the time? Correct. It was a, um, 
it was a, a it's been released publicly, so I can talk about it. It was what uh, Gail calls an operational skill building session. Uh, okay. So she will give us very challenging topics in right. between operational sessions. So right. what this was, was to find a solution for the fact that this submarine is sitting off Norway and still emanating radiation to this day. Right. So this was for the team to see if you could detect uh, a solution. So, okay, that's a good question. Um, in CRV, the primary purpose is, of course, to gather information. Um, as you are well aware, if you start to get into a bilocation, the normal response is to take a bilo break because Ingo Swan felt that the disadvantages of a bilocation far outweighed the advantages. And it was his idea that it's better to simply close off that aspect and concentrate on the intelligence gathering. However, that doesn't mean that what you experienced right on the edge of the, the lemon, the lineman, you know, between subconsciousness and consciousness, when you started to bilocate, isn't there. It's still there. And when you fell into that dream state, you dropped down into that state where these rose up. And that's probably the reason why you experienced what you did. Uh, in terms of how you deal with that, um, for me, it was, regardless of the fact that for me it was an uncomfortable session, it was a successful ERV session. Mm -hmm. And because this is the aspect of remote viewing that, that I wanted so much, I was willing to put up with it. I was willing to accept, you know, the disadvantages of ERV and biolocations in order to get a better experience at the target. Um, one of the nice things about ERV, and I don't know if Paul Smith will agree to this, but it was my experience, is that you get a better level of viewing or at the very least, a faster level of viewing of the complete target in ERV than you do in CRV because of the staged manner in which CRV is run. Um, it's not to say that ERV is better than CRV. It's not. Um, an adept in CRV is going to be just as good as an adept in ERV. But the experiences are going to be entirely different. And I wanted the, the magic carpet ride. So I was willing to take the, um, uh, the good with the bad, if you will. Uh, second, or our third attempt at ERV in the same class, I wound up in a similar situation, only at this target site, I was once again freezing cold. And instead of having somebody be sitting on my chest where it felt really oppressive and heavy and, and, and uh, 
very difficult to breathe. Now it felt like I couldn't breathe, like there was nothing there to breathe. You know, I had a really hard time. It felt like I was being smothered because every time I took a, a breath in, it felt like I wasn't getting any air, which was, for me, really, really distressing. And it turned out that the target site was the Twin Peaks section of Mars, mm. which is ice cold, and the atmosphere there is only one one-hundredth of what it is here on Earth. So I felt that type of reaction that my body would normally have done when I was there. Although, once again, your metal sensor keeps you from getting hurt. But that's what it was like. It was uncomfortable. But at the end, that session was one of the best sessions I ever had. And I was super excited about it. So the, yeah, the only thing you can really do, Russell, um, is just try and get used to it. You know, that's, yeah, that's one I, of the things that um, that really good remote viewers are going to experience. During the CRV session, I had zero sense of bilocating at all. So I did. I had no. So so I, th I you know, like you say, it must have come right up to that threshold. Now yes. for me. Um, I had a bad experience in confined space rescue training in the fire department and claustrophobia is a little bit of a button for me. Yeah. Not so much anymore, but still. So when I started to feel yeah. that in my sleep, I mean, I, I bolted up and like you said, I'm like, crap, I, I can't breathe. And I did feel cold and I did feel the, the pressure. So when I read this in your book, li literally it vanished as soon as I let it jump over the threshold and said, Oh, that's what that's what that was. Yeah. Um, so there yeah. was something about the knowingness or, or the realization that that was there. And then since then, you know, nothing just gone. No, no more effects at night, day. No more, no more yeah. thoughts about it. Yeah. And See, once you once you understand where that was coming from, your internal sensor was trained, right, and would no longer allow that subliminal. Um, aspect to impinge upon you. So. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that must be a plus two, I think, in a way. <laughs> um, what I read in your book, you know, it kind of makes you feel like, okay, I'm not the only crazy one, right? So <laughs> the fact that it was a shared experience, yeah, um, that brought some comfort too. So anyways, thank you for that. Thank you for your mm -hmm. book. And I really appreciate your explanation here. Sure. You're very welcome. Excellent. Thanks, Russell. And the next hands up is Kamal Kazi, if you'd like to ask your question. Hi. Um, thank you for your time, first of all, for coming on, John. I guess this is probably a continuation of the same uh, question, possibly. Uh, there was an article I'd read, and it was about be careful what you're remote viewing, etc. It involved this story about a person who had remote viewed the bombing of Dresden. And basically the highlight of it is they bilocated and they got to a point where they started screaming, I'm in Dresden and I'm on fire. And allegedly there were visible burn marks on them. I was wondering if uh, you, you'd similar to this Titanic thing, if you'd essentially seen anything like that, or if that seems a little too, a little too out of the. No, realm. not at all. Not at all. Um, as an ERVer, it's common for me 
at least for me. Not all ERBers do it, but for me, it's quite common to bilocate. Um, and it's a double-edged sword, as I said. And part of the reason that it's a double-edged sword is what you um, have, have uh, commented on. Um, Dave Morehouse um, remembered or recalled uh, an incident during his training in ERV where the target was a, um, a Russian amphibious landing craft that was a hovercraft. And he saw it from underneath the water as it passed overhead. And he bi was bilocated at the time and he felt like he was drowning. And he started to, to thrash around um, the ERV room and was coughing up fluids. And he thought he was drowning, but it turns out he wasn't coughing up seawater. He's just coughing up spittle and and um, um, just stuff that you would have in your throat. So your mind has a censoring ability. It will never allow you to to get hurt, so to speak. Um, it does not mean that you won't have any physical manifestations, though. Um, the idea that you could have what appear to be burn marks, like first degree burns on your arms, because you, you were bilocated at, in the firestorm at Dresden. Um, yeah, that, that, that can happen. And that isn't really a burn. It will, it will fade after you come back, um, to, um, uh, to regular consciousness. But, um, in my book, I talk about the vision that I had um, during, oh, this was at years after I had started with Dave Morehouse and I had become one of his group leaders and assistant um, instructors, where the target was the USS North Carolina, a World War II battleship. And I had a, what I, the only thing I can call it is a vision um, at night when I was dreaming and I was in a place where things were happening and stuff like that. And when I woke up, um, my roommate at the time who was up doing some stuff on the computer looked over, was looking at me and he said, what's going on? And I said, I'm not exactly sure what happened. I think I had a vision or, or I was someplace else and I was rubbing my knee because in the, where I was, I was kneeling against rocks. And he said, what's wrong with your knee? And I said, well, I was kneeling on rocks. And as I looked down at my knee where I was rubbing, my knee had indentations in it as if I had been kneeling on a rock and I, and I was just astounded. And my roommate who saw it was like, what was going on? So 
you can have actual physical manifestations that occur during uh, a bilocation. Um, but again, they, they aren't real insofar as a burn isn't really a burn and the indentations in my knee weren't from kneeling on a rock because I, <laughs> there were no rocks in the room where I was in. But it gives you that your body does react in a way that would simulate what would happen as if you were actually there at the target. Thank you. Um, and then I guess my, my only other question, I'm, I'm fairly new to the remote viewing community. Are there any resources or good teachers for ERV that you can recommend? I'm sorry for? Uh, any, any good resources for learning ERV? Um, well, ERV has kind of dropped off a bit. There aren't that many people who do teach it. Um, as I understand it, Lori Williams, um, uh, Angela Ford, and Dave Morehouse are the only ones that, that teach it as far as I know. Uh, there may be others. I'm not sure. I'm, um, I don't think Bill Ray teaches anymore. Um, those are the only ones that I know of. Most people have concentrated on CRV. And as Dave Morehouse said, it's a much better idea to go through CRV first. Learn CRV first before you attempt ERV. Because in all honesty, in Dave's classes and teaching ERV, only about half the class were able to make the transition from doing CRV to doing ERV. And of those that did make the transition, approximately a third of them decided they would rather work uh, CRV. Um, ERV is not for everyone. Uh, it's difficult to achieve the kind of depth in the hypno hypnagogic state where ERV happens. And like I said in the beginning, um, there are no handholds. There's no stages. What you have are delivery mechanisms and certain signposts that occur that tell you that you're in the right direction but it's not like CRV. I mean, anybody can do CRV once they learn it. Anybody. ERV, entirely different cat. So uh, you might want to try uh, Paul Smith, Lynn Buchanan, um, I think Lori Williams, um, Sandra Hilliard. Uh, who else? I think oh, Angela man. Smith, right? What's that? Angela Smith, doesn't she? I mean, I know she's in. Yeah, that's right. Angela Smith. Angela Smith. Yes. Yes. Thank you. And just get through CRV first. And then from there, um, you can seek out an instructor for ERV. Thank you for your advice. Sure.
Um, we have a question in the chat window that kind of adds on to this reading. It's from Chris, uh, and he says, if you are consciously aware that you are bilocating, uh, shouldn't you know that you are not in the body anymore and not feeling the degree of element? There's a bit of confusion um, as to what exactly ERV entails. Um, ERV is not an out-of-the-body experience. Okay? It's not astral projection. At no time did I ever feel that I was outside of my, um, um, my workstation. What it is is um, an extension of consciousness, if you will. Okay. Um, You're buying into a simulation, see, aren't you? What I see when I'm at the target area is if I was looking at it just as I do when I look around the room. You know, I mean, if I look down, I can see my body, but normally with my head up, the only thing I can see is, you know, the tip of my nose through my, you know, peripheral vision and maybe um, my. The upper portion of my cheeks, but that's all, all I normally see when I look around. Okay, I know I'm in my body. I'm not anywhere else. It's the same thing with ERV. You know you're in your um, workstation, and when you look out at something, that's the what you see. You know, just as you normally would if you were in a room or if you were at the target site. Now. Remote viewing is an intensely personal experience. Everybody experiences these things differently. Uh, in ERV, Dave used to see himself as an apparitional form, as if he was watching his apparitional form do what he wanted it to do. Okay, so everybody has a different idea or a different way of experiences in ERV. Um, one of my good friends who was um, in Dave's classes with me, Sandra, uh, didn't get a whole lot of um, uh, visuals in ERV, but she could, she could pick up scents, she could pick up textures and sounds like unbelievable. Just unbelievable. So it's like everybody has a different modality that is their primary and secondary modalities. For me, it was always vision and um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, kinesthetic, kinesthetic, you know, gut feeling sort of thing. Excellent. Uh, I'll ask one more question before we go to the uh, hands ups. And this is from David's iPhone again. He says, John, can you talk about your experimental stuff, including the target of your own mythology and history, as well as the far off distance, uh, distant space target from your book? Oh, okay. Um, Dave Morehouse, as well as a number of other um, uh, remote viewers from the original military program, often did targets that were speculative. Um, just to see how far they could take it, remote viewing, and get a, an intelligent response out of it. 
Um, you have to understand that when they do this, even if follow-on sessions on this same target seem to confirm what the original one's uh, results were, uh, you have to understand that that is still speculative. It's experiential because without any feedback, real feedback, not another remote viewer that saw the same thing, which is not feedback, by the way, um, without physical feedback, uh, it's just speculative. It's just experiential. You do it for the experience. Okay. So on this one target that, um, that we were sent, Dave told us that he had been in New York City um, helping to organize a parade for returning veterans from the Desert Storm. And while he was there, uh, he got a hold of Ingo Swan. So he went over to meet him and, and they sat and they talked and they, they had dinner together and stuff like that. Well, in doing so, he asked Ingo if he had any really interesting targets that he could use. And Ingo replied that, yes, I have one target that seems to be a real confounding one. And he said that this target was a deep space target. And everybody seemed to see a ring of spacecraft around something. He said that most of the people that did this target got caught up in the species in the spacecraft and never looked at what they were there to investigate. So he had very little information as to what this central object was that, they, that this ring of spacecraft was surrounding. So Dave took the target and he brought it home. And when we were in the, oh, what was it? One of Dave's advanced classes, I forget which one it was, uh, he gave us the target. And when he gave us our, our testing sheets, which gave us the, coordinate, uh, the coordinates for the target, he asked some very basic questions, nothing that would give away what the target was. But he said, um, as one of the uh, warnings on there, that you must look deep into this target. Do not be, um, do not get too wrapped up at what you first encounter. He said there is more there than what is obvious. He said to drive for whatever it is that is beyond the target that you will encounter first. So we, we went and we did our cool downs and I dropped into the target zone. And I knew immediately I was in space because I was floating weightless. It was, there was a huge vista of stars. I mean, not like you see normally in, in the night skies because of all the light pollution. This was just as if somebody had spread a handful of, or several handfuls of different colors uh, gems out there. It was absolutely gorgeous. There were there were some nebulae that were that were glowing, emission nebula, 
And it was just absolutely beautiful. And I was just like, wow, this is really cool. But I knew that that couldn't be the target. So I reoriented myself. I started looking around and I noticed spacecraft, number of spacecraft. Okay. And I thought that's got to be what Dave was talking about. So I need to forget about that and go deeper into this target to see what it was that the spacecraft were there for. And what I saw was a spinning globe of gas. It was spinning rapidly. It was a compact object. I thought it was about as a my feeling was, since there was nothing there to compare it to, to get a, a size estimation, but I felt like it was about a kilometer wide. And the gases that were spinning around um, were pinker or or more orangish around the edges. But as the gas swirled in, it became hotter and whiter until there was a central object and I could feel the central object. It was spinning and it was heavy. It was very, very dense. And the only thing I could think of was a small black hole. And I noticed as I watched that there were magnetic fields that were flowing along the gas lines that were held in place by the central, by this central black hole. And it seemed like there was something going on. These fields were coherent. They were, the, the idea that came to me was thought. This thing wasn't just a thing. This was an it. This was thinking, a thinking. And I sent my, my mind into it, and I could feel it, that it was a creature. It was a, just a really a deep space creature and that it was receiving radio wave information from the spacecraft and it was responding to it. So to me, it was like a, you know, a cosmic coffee clutch. I mean, they were talking back and forth to each other. And I had this feeling, this overwhelming feeling of very, that this object was very ancient and it was lonely. That was another impression that came to me. It was really lonely because there were no, no other one of its kind around. And um, so I, I, I started to, to probe into it to try and see a little bit more of its structure. And it was spinning so fast that it wasn't a ball so much as... It was a like a like a torus deep on the inside. I don't know why that was was because um, from the outside, the shadow it gave it was round, kind of round, and the, the gases were being pulled around and, and down into it, and it was a really energetic object. But it, like I said, it to me it wasn't just a thing; it was a, a creature of some sort. 
And it was right at that point that I got a, uh, we got the warm up from one of the, pro the class proctors who said that the session was over and it was time to come back. And I was like, I don't want to come back. I don't want to stay. I want to see what, what these people were, what everybody is talking about. But, you know, uh, the warm-up music was on. And so reluctantly, I came back to Sanctuary and then um, wrote it, got back up and wrote my, my, um, my um, session summary. And I drew the pictures and everything else that I saw there. Well, the funny thing is, is that about two years later, I was in Borders Bookstore, which I used to haunt all the time, where I also found Dave Morehouse's book. And I came upon a book by uh, Gregory Benford called Eater. And in it, it describes almost to a T the same creature that I had seen in that session. And I was just <laughs> totally flabbergasted that a creature like that could actually exist. I mean, there's no way that I can confirm what I saw was real, but the fact that Gregory Benford, uh, I should say Dr. Gregory Benford, who is a um, plasma physicist, uh, could come up with an idea where there was a creature based on a small black hole with an accretion disk around it. And its intelligence was in the magnetic fields that were tied to the, um, uh, to the central black hole, which matched almost exactly what I had seen, um, was really quite eye-opening. But again, I have to say, this is, this is one of those speculative targets where it's experiential in nature. There's no way that I can um, say whether or not for real that this actually happened. Excellent. Thanks for that. Uh, next person with their hand up is Robert. Thank you, Daz. And thank you, John, for spending the time. Uh, and telling the stories, I'm a consummate connoisseur of your wit and whimsy on Facebook. So thank you for that as well. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, my question, it, it's, it's kind of a, I don't know if it's bilocated in its nature or if it's symbiotic, but in the ERV experience and the protocols that you use and the experiences you've had, particularly when it relates to the bilocation part of it. How often or has it happened to you at all where you actually engage in communication with subjects at a target? And one of the reasons I'm asking this is uh, some of the recent work of uh, the Farsight Institute, uh, a lot of their sessions, they seem to encounter or have these encounters where there's actual integration or communication with subjects at the target. And I, I guess my question is, is that, does that require bilocation or is that simply just the consciousness itself engaged in the target 
what's your thoughts there? What's your experience there? That's a good question. Um, in my experience, I have never contacted or gotten a conversation on any of the targets, which includes the, um, um, the eater that I had seen. Uh, what I got was a sense that there was communication going on between them. But I personally don't know whether or not the eater ever saw me or knew that I was there. I've never had a situation where I communicated with anything that I saw in the matrix, whether it was CRV or ERV. So I can't really comment on that. Um, I don't know if, if it is possible, if what they say is happening really does happen, or if it's some figment of their imagination. Um, because of the fact that I've never experienced it, I can't really comment on it. Do you think that if that is a possibility when you're engaged in the target and you're uh, having a sense of physicality or by location in that sense, do you think that it's more common or less common or just unknown whether the targets can actually, or the subjects in the targets can actually engage in that? I, I've seen, I think Daz and, and Dick Algar and even Edward Reardon have had some similar types of experiences, if I'm not mistaken. Well, let me, let's, CRB mode. well, let me put it this way. Um, the closest that I ever came to a communication with someone in uh, ERV space was an occurrence in one of Dave's classes where we were teaching class in ERV. And one of the young ladies that was in my group lamented that she didn't get a lot of visuals that, you know, she had, she had heard everybody's explanations of how visual everything was and, you know, how wonderful it was. And she got very few and she was really frustrated. So I gave her some hints about how to have visuals and on the next target, you know, she said that she would do, she would use my, my uh, suggestions and see if she could get some more visuals. So as the class was cooling down, I thought for a moment and I thought, I thought back to my first ERV where Dave had gone to the target and waved a flashlight. Mm. And I don't know if it was ego or if it was just, I wanted to help her, but I decided, you know what? If Dave can do it, I can do it. <laughs> kind of egotistical but at that time uh, I was reveling in my abilities um, which I would be brought up quite short which I would relate later but at the time I thought I could do the same thing so I jumped down on the floor stuck a jacket under my the back of my head and did a fast cool down using some of the Trojan warrior techniques that I had learned and fortunately, I managed to beat her to the target. So I watched as the various um, class members dropped into the target area, and I willed that they couldn't see me. You know, I made it my intention that they could not see me. 
because I didn't want to, I didn't want to bother anybody else's session and have them, you know, break out of it because they saw me there. Instead, I, I willed myself invisible. And when I saw um, the young lady drop into the target area and start looking around, I, I willed myself to be visible to her. And I, I waved at her. And she saw me. And at that point, I smiled at her. And then I executed an emergency return to, to um, uh, sanctuary. Because I didn't want to bust her session. I just wanted her to see me, to show her that, yes, you can have visuals too. So I got up from that and looked over at her. And she was quiescent on her workstation. And I thought, oh, crap. Did I fuck up? <laughs> did, uh, did I screw up? She doesn't look like she saw me. Maybe she didn't see me. Maybe, maybe I screwed up her session. And then I started to think about the repercussions of what I had done. And I thought, oh, man, maybe I really screwed up this thing. So I waited with, I was on the tip of my feet at this point. I mean, I just wondered what the hell happened. You know, how did it go? Did she, did she make it to the target and see the target and everything else? So finally, the warm-up music started when uh, the class proctor brought them, them back up to do their session summaries. And she got up, you know, she walked over to the table. She started writing her ses session summary as if nothing had happened. So I thought, oh, whew, dodged a bullet. She probably didn't even see me. She finishes her session summary, gets up, and immediately starts looking around. And when she sees me, she makes a beeline for me. And I thought, uh-oh. And she comes up to me and she goes, you went to the target site with me, didn't you? And I didn't say anything. I just looked at her. And she stamped her foot. She goes, you went to the target site with me, didn't you? And I slowly nodded, yes, I did. And she reached over and put her arms around me and gave me a kiss on the side of the cheek and said, she said, thank you, thank you, thank you. I saw the target. I saw you. I mean, it was the best session I've ever had. So I think it is possible that you can do communications in ERV space. Well, when you were describing the experience with Dave Morehouse and the Titanic with the flashlight, where he was mm -hmm. actually enjoined with the group consciousness, I, I guess, if you will, mm -hmm. um, that's the first time I've heard that type of engagement in CRV or ERV, uh, any of the consciousness projection sessions. And I find that extremely fascinating. And that's one of the reasons that the, the question about communication occurred because in that scenario with Dave Morehouse on the Titanic, engaging in front and with the group as a beacon, as he, he could see everyone as, as, yeah. as you were describing, and they yeah. could see him. So not necessarily a, um, a communication of knowing other than a communication of seeing and guiding, right? And it, it, it sounds like there was communication, at least on that level, on a consciousness group 
target acquisition, I guess, is the only thing I can think of the way to describe it. Yeah, it's it. I guess because I never actually had the intention of communicating rather than just being a passive observer and trying to remember everything that you Mm -hmm. see there. Okay. Because these were not monitored sessions. Um, When you have a monitored session, then you can give information as you're going through your session and you don't have to worry about trying to remember it afterwards. Right. Right. But because this was not a, a monitored session, I didn't have that opportunity. So I never, really tried to communicate with anybody other than what I did with uh, that young lady. And um, the interesting thing was when I saw the people drop into the target area, it was only where I looked at them that I could see them, their body per se. So for instance, when I looked at Cheryl, I could see her face, but the rest of her was transparent. And then as I looked down, I would see the rest of her body and then her face would go transparent. Wow. So I could see the outline of the face and her features, but it wasn't filled in until I went up and I concentrated on what I was on her face. And then her features suddenly filled in. It seems fascinating. It seems fascinating because it's a visual communication as opposed to something that's mental or uh, or uh, consciously in a sense of where you're actually exchanging information. So um, that is fascinating, a whole nother level of uh, remote viewing that I have not heard of before and really appreciate uh, you sharing that with us and, and uh, explaining that to me because now I want to go even further. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Next up, we have Don asking a question again. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I've been taking notes here. Let me see if I can find this. Yeah. Okay. You, so you mentioned the discomfort that one might experience or potentially experience not being able to breathe or you're shivering while you were doing ERV. Mm-hmm. And uh, this makes me wonder, um, doesn't that interfere with your ability to stay focused and in the zone i mean oh, if, I started, so. if i started shivering if if i you know wasn't able to breathe i mean that would be end of session right there so um how are you managing that that's an excellent question um when i first started in erv it was especially on that first one the only thing i was able to through to come up with on my sketch was a picture of the wall with the the fence that was clumped and then a light that I, that I drew shining out from it because this, the experience was so overwhelming that that's all of that, that I could actually recall or concentrate on. Um, The second time when we went to uh, Mars, it was uncomfortable, but I felt like David told me, concentrate on the target. You know, put aside the sensations you're feeling. Try and concentrate on the target and your mission. You have a mission. You're there to get information. Remember that. 
he said, when you're in sanctuary, you want to reinforce the reasons that you are going to this target. You know, you have a mission, you need to get information, you need to reconfirm that and reinforce it so that if you are in a situation where you are bilocated and the bilocation is an uncomfortable one, you can try and put that aside and concentrate on what your mission was. And as I got more conversant in the ARV, um, the sensations, although they, they didn't go away, um, I was able to overlook them and continue on with the mission. Wow. <laughs> okay. I, uh, you know, I really got to think about that. Yeah. Okay. See, that's one of the advantages of CRV. CRV um, puts aside uh, bilocations. Uh, if you start to get a bilocation, you're supposed to take a bilo break in order to break that, that um, identification with target. So that doesn't come up in CRV. So you don't have to worry about that. It's only an ERV that um, that you really wind up in um, some really powerful uh, biolocations. Okay, so let me sort of reiterate what I heard: is when you start experiencing these um, conditions, uh, discomfort or mm -hmm. whatever, you have to focus into the intent of what you're there for. Um, reaffirm it. Just keep thinking yes. about that. Yes. Yes. And well, if necessary, what, what you can do also is to return to the breathing exercises. And that also can help alleviate some of the symptoms. All right. Well, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, next up is uh, Rich is in the queue with his hand up. Hi, John. Uh, a couple questions Howdy. real quick. Um, have you done uh, the Monroe Institute's Gateway program? Oh, no, I haven't. Or uh, listen to those things. always tapes. one of the things that I've wanted to do, but I've, I've never had a chance to try it. I have used their tapes on occasion. Okay, like their hemi-sync tapes? Yes. yes. I, the reason I asked is because um, it's one experience I have getting into different states of consciousness. Um, mm -hmm. So I was just kind of curious um, which of the focuses is what they call it, uh, right. which of the focuses maybe uh, is close to what mental state you're in when you're doing an ERV. So that's why I asked that. Um, um, is it I believe that I oh. think it was focus 13. Oh, okay. It was the closest analog to ERV, the ERV state, if I remember correctly. Interesting. How, when you get into that mental state, uh, when they're training it to you, um, how do you know that you're in the right? Is it once you get to the hypnagogic state or is it, um, what's, what's some uh, uh, mile markers? Oh, yes. Uh, the signposts. Um, from my experience, when I would do the cool down, I would turn inward. I, I don't know how better to say it other than I would tune out the exterior world. And I got very good at that from a very young age because 
I read a lot when I was younger. And I got so engrossed in, in reading that I tuned out the entire world around me. I could, I mean, you could be talking at me from five feet away. I would not hear you, literally would not hear you. Um, at work one time, I was so engrossed in, in something that I was reading on the computer screen <clears throat> that everybody was yelling at me, yelling my name. I did not hear them. They finally <laughs> threw a piece of paper rolled up in a ball and, and hit me in the head with it. And I'm like, the hell? We were trying, we've been yelling at you. Didn't you hear us? And I go, no, I was engrossed in what I was reading. So over the years, I've developed this ability to push aside the outside world. And I call it turning inward. And so when I do my cool down, I do the same thing. I, I do the breathing exercises to help get you down there. Okay. And as you get lower and lower, what happens is you reach a point, and this is um, when you're in sanctuary, you're doing the breathing exercises to bring you to the target area. What happens is I get this intense feeling of falling. That's my first signpost, the feeling of falling. It's really uncomfortable. And when it first happened to me, um, I dropped out of the zone because it was uncomfortable. Your stomach rises up. Just like taking a, a jump off of a, um, uh, not a chair, you need something, you need to be up higher, like, up, like on a ladder or maybe on a hill or something. You take a jump and you drop about 10 feet. That, that feeling, like when you're in a roller coaster and it drops out from underneath you and your stomach rises, that's exactly the feeling that I feel. And that tells me I am on my way to the target and I'm going to be bilocated. When I reach the target, you pass through the membrane, which is a mental construct to tell you that you're there at the target. It has no material um, uh, aspect to it. It's just like walking through a mist of water. And I know I'm at the target. Now, normally when I get to the target at the first, um, I'm surrounded by black, gray, and purple clouds, like what you see when you close your eyes and you press against your eyelids, you'll see these forms forming of purple and gray and black. And to me, it's like fog or clouds around me. And in the background, I'll see little flashes of like heat lightning, okay? So I know I'm, I'm right at the point where I need to be. And all I need to do now is just a few more breathing exercises. And as I do those breathing exercises, fog clears away and I can see just like, um, well, like I'm seeing you right now. It's that wow. clear. That's incredible. So what um, signposts that I look for when I'm doing ERV. Okay. Thank you. And um, the breathing exercises that you stated, is that part of your Trojan Warrior uh, program too? Uh, actually, no, that's, that's part of the, um, the training to get you into the, uh, the ERV state. Okay. Uh, it's taught by Dave Morehouse. Okay, I'm I got sure you. That the other um, instructors that use ERV or that teach ERV uh, teach you the same type of breathing exercises. Do you feel, do you ever get... Um, 
I don't know if you've ever tried to have like an OBE or astral projection or anything, but uh, <laughs> you know, I've I've gotten to this point <clears throat> before where you know I I can feel the vibrations, and then obviously I lose it after that. Do you ever get any sort of vibratory anything uh, with your? No, you know it's funny. When I was a kid, I wanted to to do a out of the body, but I was never able to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> I've tried. I've tried very hard to, and uh, yeah, same. Here. I've had one accidental success, and uh, not on purpose. And then my my final question: what uh, what martial arts do you do? Oh wow! Um, well, I'm conversant conversant in a number of them. And my first one was Taekwondo, and I spent uh, two years in that. And then I went from there to Shaolin, hmm. and then I learned. Um, Northern Praying Mantis. Yeah. Um, bachi. Um, Chen style Tai Chi. Combat style. And uh, China. Okay. Very cool. Okay. I do hop keto, so I was just curious. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Doing martial, yeah, doing martial arts is actually a good thing to do uh, if you want to be a really good remote viewer, too. Good to know. Uh, at least I've got one leg up, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks, John. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Rich. Uh, next up is Russell again. Hey, Rich. Just so you know, I put a, a link to a TMI focus level webpage. In okay, the chat. perfect. Oh, yeah, I see that now. Okay. okay. Oh, yeah, and the response from uh, Kiao. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Um, and then super, one quick thing is, Don, where's Dawn? There's Don. Just so you know, in his book, he actually puts his sessions, uh, the feedback. So that question you asked, like he has just an elaboration in a whole chapter, and then most of them have the, the uh, se- actual session work with the feedback. All right. Oh, good. So, okay. Uh, John, for you. So as you are probably well aware, um, Many remote viewers now are going down this rabbit hole of the close encounter of the fifth kind contact protocols, calling in aliens, wanting to interact with these beings. So in your uh, chapter on ERV, um, one of the things I found very interesting was where there was the warnings by Dave Morehouse about the different types of entities that one could uh, encounter. Mm -hmm. Um, So what you wrote was they range from the benevolent to the malevolent. Uh, And apparently this is a quote of Dave's. There's both good and evil in the matrix. Normally the only ones that will actively seek you out will be the tricksters. They are harmless as long as you remember your training. Do not engage them. They will do everything to keep you misdirected. And then it goes on to, into some more details. Right. So my question is, what, um, what was the training? And just maybe even as a PSA, could you highlight the potential dangers that were mentioned here so that people that aren't trained or prepared don't go screwing around thinking, oh, this is just some wonderful being? Well. <clears throat> it was Dave's take that there were levels of existence. Uh, there's our level, 
And also in the matrix, there were levels of existence as well. Um, and that's where he talked about these um, entities that he called them. Um, my own take on that is, is this. Um, I never saw any other entities there except once. Um, there were never any tricksters or anything like that, as far as I knew. Uh, I'd never had any um, experience with a contact of, of any sort in the matrix. The only time that I actually saw what I thought was a trickster or something was um, when I was on the way to a target. And in my experience, when I drop into the target zone from sanctuary, it's like, um, if you've ever seen this, the uh, TV show Stargate SG-1, you know, when they step through the, the, uh, the Stargate and they go on that, that like wormhole to get to the other Stargate at the other end of the universe, that's what, if, what it was like for me. It was like going through a, a wormhole. And as I was going through, I saw this goblin-like face suddenly flash before me and disappear behind me. And I was, it startled me, but I thought, you know, it's not what I'm interested in. That's not the target. And I just ignored it and continued on. So that's the only time that I have ever seen anything that could be construed as a trickster or any other entity that might inhabit the, um, the matrix. And I think that's probably because being a, a science oriented and science trained and also you know, being a private military contractor, you tend to concentrate on the mission at hand and anything extraneous to that you ignore. Um, as for extraterrestrial targets, um, I'm probably not the one to really talk about that. I don't believe that we've ever been visited. Um, I don't believe that people who say they're in contact with um, extraterrestrials are really talking to extraterrestrials. Um, there's a number of reasons for that, uh, for my feelings along those lines. Uh, primarily is number one, why would they want to talk to us? Number one. Number two, um, there has never been any, uh, how can I put it, any way of confirming that any of that type of information could possibly be true. And if you understand the enormous uh, distances involved, um, the probability that they've been in contact with an entity that is extraterrestrial in nature is problematic at best. Um, it could possibly be the tricksters that they're actually talking to, and they're just having a grand old time laughing it off, saying that now oh, we got this guy going, thinking that we're extraterrestrials. 
Yeah, well, um, you know, now that you mention it, it does stand out. He doesn't mention anything when he's, and it's a really fascinating few paragraphs where you're quoting Dave. So factually, yes, he, he's not mentioning uh, anything associated with T. The one part that really caught me here was what he said, uh, or what you wrote that he said, they, they feed off negative emotions like fear. If they can engage mm-hmm. you in some manner, then they can get you to fixate on them instead of your mission. Then you are feeding them and entertaining them. And his cure yeah. is exactly and, what you know, my take on my take on that, Russell, is, is that there is a good possibility that the tricksters are nothing more than manifestations of part of your unconscious mind. Okay. Um, it could be various aspects of your, of your unconscious mind. They talk about the ego, the id, the superego. It might be along the same lines there that these entities that you're speaking of are simply aspects of your unconscious mind. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the part of you that gives you, let's say, um, more like, for instance, I don't know if you've seen the old Star Trek series. There was a, a transporter accident where Kirk gets split into two different beings, one being uh, really aggressive and the other one is really mild. And the two of them together make a integrated whole and a great captain, but split apart. One of them is a rape is a sexual predator. And the other one is, is totally useless as a commander. Well, I think that your psyche is much more complicated than just what appears to be an integrated whole. I think there are portions of that that have separate lives in our unconscious, okay, that bring up certain thoughts and certain feelings and certain manifestations that occur, like especially those who have been in some sort of trauma. Um, and certain aspects of their unconscious mind come forth and change their personality completely. So I think that the tricksters that Dave is talking about are actually aspects of our own subconscious mind. As so far as ETs, I'm not going to put down the experiences of those who have had such contact. Um, I believe that it's something else, but... I have no proof one way or the other. If you say that, you know, um, I've heard a number of different remote viewers say that they've contacted various uh, entities out there, ETs, telepathically. Um, I'm not going to denigrate that experience because I've had some pretty wild experiences myself. Mm -hmm. So I simply maintain that it's experiential in nature until such time that we have concrete evidence that can confirm that. Okay. Now, would you, so I agree for sure, there could be pockets of uh, identities within our broader self, if you will. But, but so, so let's say there could be a lot of that going on. Do you think that precludes the, possibility of encounter an external entity in other words could it be both or are you saying 
that these things would just be internal. Oh, it could be. It could be. It could very well be an external contact. Okay. Could very oh. well be. The only problem oh. is, is how do you distinguish between the two? Yeah. Between yeah. a trickster or one part of your mind going, you know, I'm your alien buddy and stuff like that. The only sure. thing that I that that I would put out there for you is those who are mediums who believe that you know um, they have an entity called Seth or whomever, and they get information from that individual, okay, from an external source. Now that Seth person could be a manifestation of their subconscious mind mm-hmm. that they're not aware of, or it could actually be an extraterrestrial of some sort that they've contacted. There's no real way to tell one way or the other, but um, I would never denigrate that experience. And I would only look to what they say as to whether or not it is feasible or not. If they come across with information that sounds totally bogus, then I'm going to be really suspicious. Sure. If they come across with information that sounds, that sounds, you know, like I think to myself, well, that sounds intelligent. Then I have less of a problem and more of an interest in what they have to say. Well, in a, in a sense, by technical definition, not by classic human definition, the eater, since it was apparently in the proximity of Mars, that in effect would be extraterrestrial in relation to Earth. Mm-hmm. not a classic ET or gray or, you know. Right. Okay. Right. But right, man, I, I, I will say this. Um, one of the targets that Dave Morehouse sent us on, he had a, a list of 100 targets that were experiential in nature, most of them being off planet. And one of the targets was uh, acquired years ago when he was in the, uh, the Stargate unit. And it involved a planet that I forget if I think he said the star was made out of diamond. Hmm. There was a star there made out of diamond that the planet had two different species on it. There was one that was dark and almost had this overwhelmingly powerful, um, psyche and was uh, always in a dark robe and you couldn't really see what it was and it was the ruler there it was the overlord and then there was a second species that was humanoid and lived an idyllic life on this planet and over the years, he kept sending different classes to the, the coordinates. And based on information that we got from the various um, classes, I was able to plot a possible location that was some 25,000 light years away in the Horsehead Nebula or in that general vicinity. But what was remarkable to both Dave and I was the fact that each successive class pretty much added information as well as, conf- as 
to have the same information that the earlier classes had seen as well. And he built up this whole civilization around um, uh, these two species, you know, the, the overlord species that, that handled the government, that handled all of the um, uh, administration for the planet, and the second species, which was the benevolent symbiotic relationship hmm. with this other species. And of course, there was the star that was the diamond. Well, the interesting thing that I found later is that a neutron star or a white dwarf star, I'm not sure which, I have to, I have to look it up again, uh, could have burned down to carbon and the gravity be so strong that the star would turn into a giant diamond form. Mm -hmm which would confirm what these individuals had seen, a star that was actually a huge diamond. Yeah. So well, I, I can't but think you have to remember, it's experiential. There's no way that we right. have any technology right now that can send us out or reach out 25,000 light years or more in order to ascertain whether or not that civilization actually exists. Well, um, you know, thank you so much because so many many of us, you know, yearn for these uh, subjective descriptions from experience, but so often they're not accompanied by the rational uh, discipline that you have. So, so this is great. I will not raise my hand again, but I'm hoping maybe before this ends, could you tell us a little bit about your interactions with Ingo at some point after everybody's done with their questions? Oh, sure, sure. Awesome. I'd love to hear that. Thank you. Uh, John, just before we move on, um, I just, I'm slightly confused, uh, and I just want to see if I can get some clarification, because you explained some experiences you've had which kind of indicate uh, uh, maybe some kind of looking at and, and experiencing extraterrestrials, but you don't believe that p other people have, and you're, you don't believe they've visited Earth or anything. No, no, no. Um, what I'm saying is, is that these targets that have, we have no way of confirming or denying what, what happens there, um, you have to remember our experiential in nature. And as such, while they may be very evocative and successive viewers who view that target come up with information that appears to confirm what the original viewers saw and, and so on, um, it must always be remembered that in order for it to be remote viewing and one of the, you know, one of the um, disadvantages to remote viewing is, is that it's experiential in nature. There is no feedback for this. There's only other viewers' views of what they've seen that may confirm or deny whether or not you were actually on, on this particular target. But what about targets? The same with, thing, uh, and that's the same thing for anybody that goes out on these types of targets and gets information that they believe is extraterrestrial in nature. But, but John, some some do have solid feedback. Like for example, I don't know if anyone's RV the Tic Tac UFO one, but we have video, film, and radar recordings and witness testimonies on that. Oh, that would be feedback. 
Well, not really. Because in most cases, the video shows something. Well, it shows us all about It shows something, a shape, whatever. But unless you have a vehicle in hand, it's just a shape. It's just a radar target. It's just someone taking a photograph. There are all so many different aspects to a photograph or a radar target that can be distorted or twisted or made up just because of atmospherics, okay? So as far as I'm concerned as a scientist, hard evidence is something in hand, meaning you have a piece of the vehicle, you have an extraterrestrial that is lied out on a table, something that is there. That to me is solid feedback, okay? You can't use another remote viewer to give solid feedback on what another remote viewer says. No, absolutely. If it's an experienced, if it's an experiential target, it's just not scientific. But for me, uh, a video film then cross-reference with radar readings and other electronic readings, and then cross-reference with uh, professional witness statements from pilots, you know, top mm-hmm. gun pilots. That for me would oh, yeah, be very, solid evidence. That's very, very evocative. Yeah. But I have a higher standard. I need hard evidence, and I've not seen it. And when you truly understand how difficult it is to travel amongst the stars, I mean, it takes light four years just to get to the nearest star. And that's assuming I've posted posted online an article that was written in um, uh, Century, I think it's Century Dreams. Uh, It's an online podcast that was written by a scientist who gave the probabilities given the differences, not only in space we're talking about, but also in time. What is the probability that a civilization that has been in in play for maybe, let's say 200,000 years is going to be extant at the same time over a 14 billion year expanse, time expanse for the universe, at the same time that another um, civilization, let's say like ours, is going to be coexistent close enough in space and time for them to be able to contact each other. The probabilities in this universe which is somewhat in the neighborhood of, I believe, the last um, estimate was something like 150 billion light years across. I forget exactly what, because it's it's an expanding universe. Mm -hmm. But the probability you're going to get in space and time two advanced civilizations close enough that they'd be able to communicate each other is small. I mean, really small. And like I said, that one civilization that Dave uh, talked about, the the dual civilization that we had for a target, that we figured was at least 25,000 light years away. And that would have even been beyond what um, Star Trek, the original series, was capable of dealing with. 
So that's why I have a lot of trepidation when it comes to extraterrestrial targets. Because as a scientist, as a mathematical physicist, for something like that to occur, I mean, you are looking upon energies and technologies that are extreme. Not to say that they could not exist. What I'm saying is, is that to have them close enough around us where we could detect them or they could detect us. And detecting us is going to be a hell of a lot more difficult than, um, than us detecting them. <coughs> Simply because of what, um, how much energy such a civilization would give off. Yeah. You know, a Kardashev uh, two civilization where they have command of an entire star, that's going to be like a beacon out there. And I'm not, that doesn't even go into a, a Kardashev three, which is command of the energies of an entire galaxy. Okay. And we've not seen either one of those two. In fact, we haven't even seen a Kardashev one capable of handling the energy of the planet, the full planet. So that is why I have a certain trepidation on, on that particular subject. Not to denigrate any of your, any of what you've seen. It's very evocative. I mean, the things that the U.S. Navy just recently released is very evocative. And something has to be made of what that is. We just need more investigation as to what it is. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe it, uh, we'd be able to persuade you a little bit more when they release the uh, the analysis of the uh, meta materials that they they claim have. Yes. If yes, yeah, they've got something that something material that you can actually hold on to. Yeah, I believe that's, that's coming. That in, would uh, be that would June. be the uh, that would be the grail. Yeah. Yeah. I believe they're releasing something on that in June. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see. Excellent. Thanks. Uh, next up for a question is Sasha, who's had their hand up for quite a while. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, <laughs> Sasha. Uh, hi. So I'm just trying to formulate this question and listen and process what you guys are talking about. So please forgive me if it's not concise. Um, okay. If information is what actually exists, and we're just making it manifest in some kind of a sensory form by our attention to it, our focused attention, our intention um, to make it manifest, right, to our senses, only within the scope of our understanding. Um, and we can add information to what's encoded there by you adding yourself, shining a torch on a portion of a target, of an element, or waving your hands around, you're essentially encoding that in that information. John mm -hmm. was here at this time with this torch in his hands. That mm -hmm. torch isn't real mm -hmm. in a tangible sense, but it's real in terms of the information that's encoded there. You were there, you shone a torch, and that torch emitted light that lit that part of the target up for other viewers, right? Mm -hmm. So... So now that information is accessible to others. It's encoded with that target. Um, so then wouldn't it follow then from that, that any, I don't know if we want to say powerful enough viewer is viewing a target, then they're not just potentially encoding their presence there as a viewer, but they could also be encoding their own 
um, the biases that they have in how that information gets manifested to their senses and within their understanding. And so they're somehow privileging maybe a certain manifestation of information or a certain bias or a certain perspective, making that one the easier one to access, making it stronger, more accessible to future viewers. And so to some extent, does that not open up the information to a certain amount of corruption through addition, right? And then effectively, on some level, you're corrupting reality itself if we're acknowledging that reality is basically just this kind of manifestation of that underlying information. Do you know what I'm saying? And Daz, I wouldn't mind hearing from you on this either as well. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting idea. Um, I'd never really thought about the fact that I was able to uh, wave a hand at Cheryl and have her actually see that. And with Dave taking a imaginary, basically an imaginary torch and shining it with the intention of it being seen as a flashlight or a torch. Um, it's an interesting idea as to what exactly happens in the matrix when your intention is to do something like that. Um, part of the problem is, is that we don't really know what the matrix is. Uh, it's a theoretical construct that we use in order that we can make intelligent conversation about what's going on with remote viewing. Uh, but we don't really know what remote viewing is or how it actually is physically possible to do it. Um, currently, there are very few um, physical theories that will accept this possibility. Um, there's been some speculation that it might have to do with quantum entanglement. The problem with quantum entanglement is, is that number one, when you have entanglement, you are not exchanging what Einstein considered information. Okay, information is limited to the speed of light. That's by special relativity. And relativity has been shown to be one of the most accurate theory that we have nowadays. It works right up to the point where you pass through the event horizon of a black hole. It's only there that you need a quantum gravity to understand what's going on there. And also so, saying quantum entanglement doesn't actually, doesn't actually provide any further explanation because we don't actually have an understanding of what that entanglement is or me by what mechanism it works, yeah. how it, yeah. so it, it just gives you fancy sciencey words to apply to something, mm -hmm. but I don't know that it actually provides any further explanatory power, right? Like it doesn't, you know, I mean, I think it was, um, Oh, what was his name? 
It's not his real name. It's a pseudonym that he uses. He was one of the members of the original Stargate unit. I think his name was Lee, was Liam. And I don't know his real name. I only know him as Liam. But I guess his statement as to what remote viewing is, is probably just as accurate as anything else. And he called it magic. <laughs> so for want of a better term, um, the ability be, that we have to be able to do these things until we have a hold on what consciousness related phenomena really entail, it's as good a word as any, any other. I mean, you bring up a really good point as to, you know, we do these things, but we really don't know how they happen, but they would, but they happen, they do it. And, and what are the, I guess that's my main concern, I guess, or is should we be worried about the consequences of adding information if it's corrupting the information for future viewers, or if it's changing how that information is manifestable? Well, in terms of targets that have verifiable feedback, which is required in remote viewing, I don't think that's really a problem because you're actually trying to describe something that we have verifiable feedback on. Um, the problem comes when you start doing speculative targets on things that are like, well, extraterrestrials, um, uh, cryptozoological targets, things like that, where you're right, your own prejudices, your own um, way that you view your belief systems could in under those circumstances, yes, corrupt a target result. But remember, remote viewing is passive. What we do out there in the matrix, as far as we know, has no effect on what's out there. I mean, my viewing a target has no direct effect on how that target will appear into the future. I mean, if you have a better session than I did when I viewed the target and you see the target better than I do, obviously whatever I saw had no corruptive effect on that particular target. The only problem arises when it is when you are doing these speculative targets that are experiential in nature and you start believing that what you are seeing is actually there when you have no verifiable feedback that that actually is the target. So what you wanna do is just simply remember when you do targets like this, that it's experiential in nature. It can be evocative, it can be fun, it can be amazing, but it's an experience. It's not a reality. I hope I answered your question. <laughs> I'm not sure that I did. Yeah, thank you. Um, we're getting late and I don't want to keep uh, John on too much longer because I said around about two hours. Uh, so I was, um, we have no other questions in, in, in the participants window. Uh, so I just wanted to see if we wanted to finish, uh, I think, uh, Russell's kind of question about John's experiences with Ingo before we let him go on this. Oh, okay. Um, I met Ingo the first time um, at 
I believe it was, it was either an IRVA conference or it was Lynn Buchanan's um, CRV conference that was held in um, Mesquite, uh, Texas. And he was one of the lecturers there and he gave a lecture on, um, on remote viewing, which was really fascinating. And what I found interesting about that was the fact that he was exactly the way that he was described in the book, uh, remote viewing by Schnabel and by, um, uh, Paul and Dave and Lynn, uh, they described him perfectly. And he was exactly like that. He was a, he was a taskmaster. He was extremely erudite. He was smart and sharp. And he was exactly like that. What was really a, a shock was later on, um, one of the people that came with me to the conference, uh, a lady by the name of Jill, walked over with me to where to the bungalow where um, he was staying. And the noted psychic detective Noreen Renier was there. So the four of us were sitting out on the porch and we were talking back and forth about remote viewing and experiences. And at that time, I was a relatively new viewer. I had, I think that was just my second year as a remote viewer. And so I had tons of questions that I, that I wanted to ask him. And one of the questions that I wanted to ask him that was driving me crazy was I wanted to know how he saw things in the matrix. You know, I knew how I saw things. So I, I asked him, I said to him, you know, I've always wanted to know how a real psychic sees. And he laughed. He goes, you're a psychic. You're not a false psychic. And I go, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's just that as a new remote viewer, I know how I see things. And I just wanted to know, how do you see things? How does someone, and I, I, and I told him straight out, I don't understand how you can work with your eyes open. I mean, that just is completely um, impossible to, to me. I, I, just, I just don't understand how you do it. I said, when I see things, I close my, when I'm, my eyes are closed and I'm doing an ERV session. I said, or if I'm doing CRV, I mean, the pictures flow up into my, into my eyes as these shapes. And then, and then they, they, um, they kind of twist and turn and suddenly they'll form into something. And then I recognize, <coughs> excuse me, then I recognize and then the, it, it drifts away. And that's how I see in CRV. And when I'm seeing ERV, it, it comes up and I can see really clear what the target is, but then, you know, I'll get excited about it and the target will, will get lost in the mists of the matrix again. And I have to do my breathing exercise and get back down. I mean, does that sound kind of like what you do? <laughs> you know, and I was real diffident about it because, you know, you're talking Ingo Swan. And uh, he said, yeah, that's a, pretty much exactly the way I see. And I was like, are you serious? Or you're not just pulling my leg, right? And he goes, 
<laughs> he laughed. He goes, no, 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 no. And um, uh, Noreen Renier, who was listening to the, to the interchange with the two of us, laughed too and said, John, that's how we all see. That's how it always sees. I said, it's just, it, you know, it comes and it goes. It's like a, it's like a TV set that um, with the old rabbit ears on there and you're turning the rabbit ears to try and get a better picture. And all of a sudden you get the right point and the picture comes in real sharp and you're like, wow. And you, when you say that, you know, you open the rabbit ear a little bit and the picture fades out again. You know, it's a constant struggle to get, to get what you see. So it was, I mean, that was, I mean, it just made him so much more uh, human. I mean, he was completely different from his lecture personality. His lecture personality, man, he was the professor. I mean, you know what? And if he met, if he asked you a question and you didn't come up with the right answer, um, he took a real stern look. Or if you did something that was uh, considered not the best answer, he he'd let you know it. I mean, he, he didn't pull any punches. But when he was sitting there on the porch with us, oh my God, he was he was just funny. He was he was um, affable. I mean, just like you like I just met him, and it was like we had known each other for years. And just just a just a really creative and a great personality. I mean, he's just a great guy. John, thanks for sharing that. And um, yeah, thanks for coming along this evening and answering these questions and talking with us. And, and thanks for using Zing for your first time. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for getting me into it. So I know exactly what I'm doing for a change. <laughs> it's been a great evening. And I'm sure everyone agrees. And, you know, we've had a great wealth of information from your, your answers tonight. So thank you very much for agreeing to doing this. Well, thank you all for uh, joining us today. And thank you, Daz, for inviting me. It was it's been a great. lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for coming along. Um, see you next time. We haven't got anything arranged yet, but we'll, we'll put something up. Again, thank you, John, for this. Um, everyone have a good weekend, and we'll see you next week. Take thank care. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Daz. Thanks for listening to The Signal Line, a remote viewing podcast. Don't forget to check out remoteviewed.com for remote viewing resources or our videos on YouTube under Remote Viewed.